time since the beginning of the war, the President of the United States goes to a baseball game. Harry S. Truman takes his place in the stands, autographing a baseball for the Washington mascot before the game between teams representing Washington and St. Louis. The President tosses out the first ball to start the game. St. Louis team takes to the field. Baseball commissioner Chandler is among the spectators, as in the first inning, Washington's Myatt hits safely, advancing Case to second base. Travis at bat, facing the St. Louis pitcher. Travis is out at first, but Case comes around to score. For the Washington team, a four to one victory. For President and Mrs. Truman, a long postponed moment of recreation. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Greetings and salutations, everyone. My name is Tim Hanlon, and uh, thanks for uh, coming in. It's uh, Good Seats Still Available. It's our curious little podcast, uh, a journey each and every week into what used to be uh, in professional sports, and uh, we are... uh, Going back in time to uh, Washington, D.C. baseball yet again. And uh, our previous episode with Fred Frommer was a very good survey into uh, a very deep and rich history of baseball in in Washington. But we're going to kind of circle around a particular zone, particular period of time uh, in baseball history in D.C. Uh, in a particular, uh, the, uh, the time around World War II, uh, roughly 1941 to 1945, but obviously a couple of years prior and after uh, we'll get into uh, with our guests this week, David Hubler and Josh Drazen. Uh, they, the authors of The Nats and the Grays, How Baseball in the Nation's Capital Survived World War II and Changed the Game Forever. Uh, the idea, the overlap, and we talked about it with Fred in our previous conversation, uh, between baseball and Washington, D.C., right? It's the nation's uh, capital and the uh, national pastime. Uh, and there's lots of uh, of imagery and um an overlap between those two ideals in the history of the sport and of our country. Uh, and it's probably uh, most uh, acute uh, during the uh, during the years of World War II uh, as baseball, uh, you know, essentially is held up as uh, this, uh, uh, you know, a quintessential element of American life, uh, especially that being challenged uh, by uh, global powers uh, all across uh the planet uh, on, uh, you know, what is arguably a very uh, uh, scary and uh, uncertain time uh, in not only our nation's history, but the world's history about sort of uh, uh, the balance uh, of freedoms and uh, and and the way of life, I guess, that America presumes to hold up and its ideals and um, and baseball, the quintessential uh, example of such, you know, the idea, frankly, of uh, of baseball you know, not only as a, perhaps as a soothing salve, shall we say, for uh, a war-weary nation that, uh, you know, is uh, distracted and and, and uh, on edge uh, and worried about its, uh, uh, you know, its future and, and the people fighting the battles to preserve that future. Um, you know, baseball is a nice uh, uh, sort of a, a distraction, I guess, from from those challenges. But, uh, you know, obviously there's another, you know, group of folk who think that, you know, the idea of playing pro baseball is, uh, is a bit frivolous when, uh, the nation is, uh, you know, uh, gearing for, uh, for battle and uh, rationing and all these kinds of things to sort of sacrifice, uh, 
uh, for the future and hopefully uh, to uh, to win uh, and and persevere uh, against his, uh, the forces of evil, shall we say, in in uh, in Europe and Asia. But you know, this uh, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, discussion that we get into with uh, Messrs. Hubler and, and Drazen uh, in a few minutes in this conversation. Uh, and you had not one actually the the Washington Centers, but two the Homestead Grays of the uh, then Negro National League. Uh, that were really Washington, D.C.'s pro-baseball teams uh, during this period of time. Uh, and uh, very interesting stories and very different ones at that uh, around the two teams that essentially uh, kept the baseball going in Washington, D.C. during these very challenging and uh, and difficult and troubled times during World War II. Uh, a very rich and uh, amazing set of uh of anecdotes and stories and uh, and little factoids uh, that we're going to unearth in our conversation coming up in a couple of seconds with uh, David Hubler and Josh Drazen uh, as we talk about the Washington Nationals, a.k.a. also the Washington Senators, and the uh, the Homestead Grays of the Negro National League who played a whole bunch of their games in Washington, D.C. And, uh, and we're going to get into all of that uh, and uh, a little bit of uh, – uh, a circling around uh, how baseball and Washington uh, handled and dealt with and uh, survived uh, the war years of World War II uh, in our conversation coming up in just a couple of uh, seconds. We want to say thank you uh, to a number of our sponsors who, uh, uh, despite all uh, uh, evidence uh, otherwise, uh, continue to step up and say, yeah, we will sponsor this little show. Uh, and uh, we'll continue our uh, alliance with uh, our pal Tim and, and good seats still available. And we can't th- we cannot thank them uh, enough, of course. And uh, if you uh, would like to show some love for the show, by all means, give them a try and uh, and check them out and hopefully make a purchase or two. Uh, and you'll help our little show keep uh, keep its lights on and and uh, our little efforts to keep uh, keep going and, and pumping out great shows for you each and every week. Uh, let's see. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Use the promo code good seats there for 15 percent off. All of your purchases when you're looking for great memorabilia, highly and well curated uh, at that. And that's buttons and pennants and uh, uh, stickers and uh, media guides and all kinds of uh, very interesting stuff from all kinds of teams and leagues uh, no longer with us. That's sportshistorycollectibles.com, promo code Good Seats for 15% off all of your purchases there. Make sure you go to oldschoolshirts.com uh, for a great logo wear, uh, great uh, teams and leagues, but also uh, amusement parks and shopping malls and radio stations of yore and some very, very cool sort of throwbacks there. By all means, check them out, oldschoolshirts.com, and make sure you use the promo code there, Good Seats for 10% off all of your purchases there. We thank uh, P.F. Wilson and friends in Cincinnati for that. Uh, 503 Sports, they fancy themselves as the king of throwbacks. That's 503-sports.com. Got a promo code for you there. That's Seats, S-E-A-T-S, Seats. For 10% off all of your purchases at 503sports503-sports.com. All kinds of uh, great shirts, but also uh, jerseys, especially uh, in and around uh, football and and hockey. Uh, You're going to find a whole bunch of uh, retro jerseys from uh, from football leagues in particular, no longer with us, like the WFL and the XFL and the World League of American Football. Fun stuff there. It's 503-sports.com, promo code SEATS for 10% off all your purchases there. And last but certainly not least, our friends at streakersports.com. Streakersports.com, we got a promo code for you there. That's good seats. And uh, you get 10% off all of your purchases there. And you're going to find a whole raft of, uh, of shirts and logos and fun stuff there. 
uh, at streakersports.com. And again, promo code there is good seats for 10% of all your purchases. So we thank all of our great sponsors uh, and hopefully some more to come and hopefully some good promotional items to come in the, in the weeks and months ahead. And again, without their support, we can't do this uh, silly little show. And uh, what better way to show your support for the show by than by going to their sites and uh, making a purchase or two. Thank you so much for doing so. And thank you also for listening. Coming up for our conversation with uh, David Hubler and Josh Drazen, they the authors of The Nats and the Grays, How Baseball in the Nation's Capital Survived World War II and Changed the Game Forever. Fascinating stuff about pro baseball, both in the American League and the Negro National League in Washington, D.C. during the World War II years. Here's our conversation that we just had a couple of weeks ago. Why don't you introduce yourselves to uh, to the audience and tell us uh, who each of you are, and then I'm really interested in how you stumbled into this story. What was the thing that uh, sort okay. of uh, got you both interested in this particular zone of Washington, D.C. baseball, uh, which I think is fascinating, as we'll get into? Yes, it is. Um, well, I... Uh I came up with this idea uh, to write a novel about uh, one about a a, ma- a minor league ball player who makes it to the majors uh, for one year during the war. And as you know, a number of players did play like one year, two years, and then they just disappeared because the the major leaguers came back from the war. And it always intrigued me how. You know, somebody could play one year in the majors and then go back to the farm or the mine or whatever it might be and just have that one great memory of having actually made it to the major leagues. Uh, one of my examples for the story was Algie and Frito, who made that wonderful catch off Joe DiMaggio in the World Series, I think, 47. And most people who have any in, uh, interest in the history of baseball uh, recognize that incident because it was on it was filmed and it was the only time DiMaggio ever showed any emotion when he ra- rounded second base and Gianfrido caught the ball and DiMaggio kicked the dirt and headed back to the dugout and Gianfrido never played in the major leagues after that game most people don't know that um, that was it that was his major league career it ended on a very high note so I, I use that as a, uh, as a um, uh, jumping off point, and I chose 1944 as the year that I would set this novel. And what I did was I created a fictional character who was a third-string catcher on the 44 Washington Senators slash Nationals. I'll mention that later. I'll tell you. But what... Um, so in, in 40, I chose 44 because it was the last full year of the war and uh, the, uh, the major league play, the real major league players were beginning to filter back to their teams. And I had the um, use of the Washington Post and all the local newspapers. And since I live just outside Washington, I chose Washington. For, and for another special reason, the, the fictional character is a third string catcher, as I said, but he has a, uh, a physical disability. He has a, a limp, but that didn't stop some of these plays uh, in war t- wartime to make the major leagues. Uh, Bert Shepard, for example, played one game for the uh, for Washington in the major leagues uh, with one leg. Uh, so uh, a, a bum leg 
uh, would not hamper a catcher too much. Plus, uh, the 44 Washington Club was uh, unique in the fact that it, it had five starting knuckleball pitchers. So that's usually the nightmare for a catcher is to catch one knuckleball pitcher. But they ha- the the team actually had five, uh, three star I think it was three starters, four starters, and a, and a reliever. So that made it easy for me to r- write something that made sense. Anyway, uh, skipping ahead, I wrote the story. I used actual quotations from the newspapers and the the, the flow of the season and what happened during the season, and I found it fascinating. Um, But I was unable to find an agent to sell the book for me. And I finally uh, went to a local publisher here in the D.C. area in Lanham, Maryland, and I pitched it to her, and she said, you know, it's really terrific, and it's well-written, but we don't do fiction. Uh, Would you consider expanding it to include all the war years, uh, and then we can publish it as a, as a history of wartime baseball. And uh, <clears throat> my uh, full-time position had just been eliminated, so I really had the time to do it, and, I, I, and that's what I did. And that's when I decided I needed some help on researching and all the other things, and that's where Josh came in. Yeah, and I've known um, David uh, basically my whole life. David was my father's camp counselor up here in Connecticut. So um, I have a background in history. I'm a major in history uh, in undergrad. I had a journalism background. So David had said, you know, would you join me in doing this? And I always wanted to have a book published. And so I said, absolutely. And um, as David said, I did a lot of the background history research and some of the editing and, and also obviously some of the baseball research. And I'm a huge baseball fan myself, not as big as David. I think he's the biggest baseball fan I know. Um, but we're both huge Yankees fans. And I remember as a kid going to Yankee Stadium, he would show us kind of the back routes to get to the stadium because he grew up in the Bronx. Um, and so I did a lot of the, uh, you know, the background World War II research and having had both my grandfather served in the war, um, I, World War II has basically been probably my favorite period of history to uh, look into and uh, have t- take classes on, and as a result, um, I, ju- I jumped on board. You know, really uh, looking forward to it because having loved both baseball and the World War II era, it just uh, was in my wheelhouse for that kind of uh, research and writing. So I think it's really interesting that uh, we had a, a previous conversation a couple of weeks back with uh, Fred Frommer, who uh, we kind of did sort of our initial, I guess, survey of of Washington, D.C. baseball across all of its uh, lengthy, surprisingly lengthy and deep history. Um, I, it, I, I, is it ironic that you uh, kind of uh, started as sort of a, a novelization of a, of, a, of a fictional player uh, in and around uh, the Washington Nationals or, uh, or Senators? Or was this, um, you know, because we obviously talked about damn Yankees and, and it, it almost seems like this team... I'm wondering if this is just a coincidence or or there's just something full of lore around, I guess, uh, sort of at least the uh, the Major League, American League, uh, Washington Senators over that period of time that uh, I don't want to call necessarily lamentable, but certainly was um, it certainly became a muse, it seems, for for more than one entity uh, in the in the arts. Yes, and it, 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 the team itself is very it has a fascinating background, and of course, unfortunately, they've been linked with failure uh, so for so long. Uh, but during the war, they actually they finished second and lost uh, in 1940. 
uh, three, they finished second. 44, they finished last. And 45, they finished second again, and they were just beaten out on the last day of the season. Uh, so they weren't all that bad. Uh, they became really bad when uh, Bob Short owned the team. Um, and they, and, but that was only for a few years because in 61, they moved to Minnesota. So, but the, the team itself has had a storied background, um, a longtime owner, uh, Clark Griffith, uh, not only bought and owned the team, he's the only man in, in the history of baseball to have played for 20 years, managed for 20 years, and owned the team for 20 years. A team, the Washington. Actually, he, he managed the original New York Yankees as the Highlanders. So his background was terrific, um, uh, and a very in incredible person. Uh, often, uh, uh, often referred to um, mistakenly as a racist. So there was a lot of history there. Um, and as I said, uh, when I started to write the novel, being here locally, um, it, it, it was just a natural fit to use uh, the uh, resources of uh, the Martin Luther King Library and, and other areas where they had all the newspapers. And, of course, I couldn't forget the Library of Congress, which is just probably the greatest <laughs> gift uh, Thomas Jefferson gave to the, <laughs> the United States after the Declaration of Independence. Well, let's talk about uh, this sort of the zone of uh, of our, our focus here, right? Because Washington, D.C., obviously, um, as we've talked about before, right, is obviously a, a national symbol, right? It's the national pastime, right? So the, the overlap of those two themes is, is especially strong. Uh, and the visuals uh, that historically uh, came out of that, uh, almost uh, simpatico with each other, but probably no more pronounced and more... Um, I don't know, more uh, uh, vivid, I guess, than, than during a time of national crisis, that being uh, World War II. Why don't we set the table a little bit as to sort of the, um, I guess, the uh, and very much uh, sort of uh, uh, parallels sort of how you've, you've laid out the book, but sort of the, the, the pre-sort of war kind of, of era, uh, obviously the Washington uh, senators, a big part of that, and, and, and obviously very interested to know sort of how uh, these homestead grays of the of the uh, Negro National League came into play, given the fact that uh, they were actually not located in Washington D.C. as well. So, have a little background about sort of the 1938, 39 ish, or early 1940 ish uh, kind of sort of scene set, uh, as then the war essentially becomes real and vivid and and um, official, so to speak, uh, as we get into. Uh, to the latter part of 1941 in Washington. Well, I, I wanted to add just one thing about uh, the, the lore of Washington, D.C., especially during this period of time, and it probably sort of leads into your question. Um, the, the reason I think this team also kind of holds, holds a bit in the lore, not only were they pretty bad a lot of the time, but um, it, it, it's the fact that D.C. obviously was our nation's capital, but also Clark Griffith had a, a pretty uh, good relationship, a very good relationship with uh, President Roosevelt, and uh, as David will probably get into in, in the answer to this particular question coming up, um, a big reason why baseball is played throughout the war has to do with Clark Griffith and, and the so-called green light letter. Um, so I think, you know, people need to realize that, uh, you know, not only was it, does it have a lot of lore, but it also is, um, uh, as a result of it being in the nation's capital, that the, the team itself and the owner played a huge role in, in baseball history and it continuing through the war and, and having all these players that had, 
you know, a couple of game careers or half a year career, that kind of thing. So um, I just wanted to add that uh, on, on top of, you know, what, what made Washington so interesting for that period of time. Actually, why don't we jump off of that? Let's talk about Griffith, right? Because, you know, he's obviously a very uh, 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 towering figure in the in the certainly the, the earliest of days, well, not earliest days, but of this of this franchise uh, as it. Uh, gained its toehold in the American League, especially um, as well as the stadium and all that kind of stuff. So, so w- explain uh, to the audience a bit about sort of his role in 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 keeping baseball strong in in Washington and these sort of overlapping, I guess, uh, uh, roles that he had. Sort of, I guess, with his relationships with various folks in Washington D.C. Power. Yeah. Well, uh, he I, I re- he first met. Um, FDR in 1917. Um, there's a, a classic photo of uh, Griffith and uh, and Roosevelt at the flagpole um, out in center field, uh, raising the flag on opening day. It's one of the few photos we actually see Roosevelt standing because it was before he he came down with uh, infantile paralysis. So the two of them became friends, and uh, at the time Roosevelt was the assistant secretary of the Navy. Uh, when uh, this was just as the U.S. was entering World War One, and Griffith was very prominent in supporting the troops, he, he supplied bats and balls and gloves uh, to the to the tr- to the camps uh, for the for the uh, GIs, uh, doughboys as they were called, uh, to play to play ball during the war. When World War II broke out, and I think this is one of the more fascinating aspects of the whole whole scene, uh, and Josh uh, made reference to the Green Light Letter. Uh, on December 7, 1941, uh, the Major League owners, the 16 owners of the teams, were meeting in Chicago for their annual um, annual owners meeting. And... Uh, about and there's a wonderful a- excerpt that I, I gleaned from Sports Illustrated and uh, from uh, a first-hand uh, interview of how how Washington learned about the uh, uh, the attack uh, and and, my, and many of the many of the fans in the stands. It was the last game of the uh, football season, and the Redskins were playing the Philadelphia Eagles in a meaningless game. Both teams were. were, were uh, poor, poor teams that year, um, and on the field, uh, the, the ball players uh, were just beginning to play, and they began hearing these announcements from the stand, uh, from the PA system. Uh, will so and so report? All soldiers report, and nobody knew what was going on, but. What had happened was the owner of the uh, Washington Redskins uh, did not want to. He, he claims he didn't want to frighten the, his, the attendants in the, in the stadium. But the real reason is he probably wanted to keep them there so he, they'd buy more uh, food and drinks at the concessions. Uh, so the owners, then, the owners at the same time were in, in Chicago uh, beginning their uh, annual meetings, and the war broke out. Well, the first question was, you know, 
among the owners, what what should we do? I mean, are we going to play? It was a big question during World War One as well, and the answer in World War One is no. Keep the keep the game going. Um, it it was good for morale. Uh, the but of course in 1917, 1918, the only way fans of the game uh, could could learn about what was going on without visiting the stadiums, uh, and there weren't that many teams, of course. Uh, the only way they could learn about it was from the newspapers. So it wasn't like uh, even the days of radio when you could just turn on radio and listen to a baseball game. So by 41, the same situation pertained. What are we going to do about Major League Baseball? Well, a few days uh, after the uh, war was declared, uh, uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the baseball commissioner, who hated Roosevelt, just despised the man. Uh, he, he was a Midwestern, uh, arch-conservative Republican, and he had no use for uh, Roosevelt. Roosevelt, on the other hand, had very little use for uh, Landis. Uh, Landis sent him a letter uh, saying, well, now what should we do? The letter was gratuitous in its attempt to you know, say, well, Mr. President, what should we do? My thinking is that he sent a letter to Roosevelt hoping that Roosevelt would shut down the game and take the blame for not having baseball. But Roosevelt sent back a letter which, uh, to my way of thinking and the research I did, it's pretty clear that Roosevelt didn't really write the letter himself. I mean, the man is now starting uh, World War II, uh, and he probably doesn't have time for that sort of thing. I believe, uh, based on what's in the letter, uh, that Roosevelt actually said to FDR, um, Roosevelt actually said to here, please answer this letter and we'll send it off. So Griffith saw an opportunity uh, to make to keep the game going, and to add night games. One of Griffith's plans was to expand baseball to night games. Washington was one of the first teams to have lights uh, for night games because there was money to be made in, at night. Uh, Cincinnati had, done, had had the first night game in 35, I think it was. Uh, and with the, with the coming of more and more troops and, and government workers into Washington, night games would really be uh, a one way to build the morale. So he wrote this letter, I believe, uh, at, which Roosevelt then sent on to um, uh, Landis, and it's called the Green Light Letter. There's a big uh, fo photo uh, copy blow up of it in the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And the, uh, he, Roosevelt said, no, we'll continue the game. It's good for morale. And by the way, why don't you consider increasing the number of night games? Now, most Roosevelt probably had no interest or knowledge about the night games. He was a big baseball fan, but I'm sure, you know, he remembers them all being played under the sun. So I think that's one of the key clues to the to my supposition that uh, that uh, the letter was penned by uh, Rick Griffith and signed by Roosevelt. Yeah, that's so that's really interesting. And Josh, maybe you want to weigh in here. So, you know, Griffith, right? And and I, I don't think it's known to a lot of well, I, I, maybe it is known because obviously he's a Hall of Famer. He Griffith's a baseball guy, right? He played. He had a. He had a he had a, a, a fairly well-off uh, uh, career on the field and man and managing, and he essentially parlayed that into uh, essentially running 
the senator's franchise, albeit uh, relatively tight-fisted I, uh, from all accounts. Correct. But but wow, I mean, you know, w- what an influence that he has with, uh, you know, with uh, some of the highest uh, holders of office in, in the land uh, behind the scenes around baseball. Yeah, it even goes it goes high more than that. But uh, Josh, oh, I was just going to say, I think that you know his being in D.C. again, it goes back to the whole being in D.C. and being close to the uh, you know to the seat of power. He you know had access to these people that other owners you know probably didn't have quite nearly as much of, especially back in the day when travel wasn't what it is now. And um, also, you know, the night games were another reason they had the night games was was to uh, they had numerous shifts of people working, whether it was in, in, you know, in defense or in other areas of D.C., and also the factory workers, and they wanted to be able to have people to, you know, come at night. But, but yeah, Griffith also, the other thing about him was that he, unlike the Crossley brothers or Wrigley or any of the other people who derived a lot of their income from uh, other sources, uh, Griffith's own, you know, main source of income was his team. So he was very, not only very tight-fisted with things, but he depended upon his team for his, uh, his, his main source of income. And as a result, I think you would ask about the Grays. How did they end up in, in D.C. when they're, uh, you know, they're the Homestead Grays? Homestead's a small, I guess, a town outside of Pittsburgh. Um, they played roughly two-thirds of their home games in, uh, for many years in D.C. and rented from Griffith, and he saw an opportunity to make more money to rent to, uh, to, the, to the Homestead Grays. So they played in Washington most of their home games, and he made you know, a good, good amount of money off of that as well. Are you saying that 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 the the uh, and we'll get more into the Grays in a, in a few minutes? But mm-hmm. you're sure. saying that the, that the Grays' appearance in D.C. was more of a financially driven decision by Griffith to kind of fill in some some spots in the part, stadium than anything. A good portion of it um, was was to, was that he saw an opportunity to make money. The Grays also did too. There was a, a large African American population in D.C. Um, and so obviously there was interest there. Um, but yeah, his, his, he needed to make money from every part of, you know, his baseball ownership. And in fact, um, early on in the team's history, um, we, we get into it in the book about how he gets ownership of the nationals. Um, cause he starts out, you know, buying minority por- portions of it. Then he had a partner. Then I believe the partner, you know, he started to buy more and more out. Uh, David may be able to, um, get into some of that if you'd like to, but, um, basically, that was his main source. So as a result of that, any source of income that he could come across, he would, he would grab. And obviously having the Grays play in the stadium, uh, renting, renting to them, and then on top of it having more night games where he could make more money uh, were, were two ways you know, that he, he saw a way to continue to you know, line his pockets as, a, as that was his you know, he didn't have chewing gum like the Wrigley's or the uh, car radio type, uh, I believe it was the car radios and other types of auto um, types of things that the Crossley brothers uh, were in. So he, he basically needed that source of income for, you know, to pay his players and also to, uh, you know, run the team. Yeah, he, and the, 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 the theory there, and you mentioned it, Tim, the, uh, that he was with a buck he was but it was is was strictly because he was the that baseball was his only source of income not not even Maine. it was his only the stadium and the team in right. fact uh, in do in doing the research for the for the novel 
um, which uh, which <laughs> goes way back. I started this thing with a glint in my eye for, uh, in the 1980s, uh, late 80s, and a number of the players who were on that 44 team were still alive, and I fortunately recorded my interviews with them that I, so I could use some of it, not knowing, of course, uh, but I did use some of it in the Nats and the Grays. Oh, absolutely. But, to a, to a man, they loved Clark Griffith. They did, they they recognized his um, you know his, his financial situation and that he was tight. But for example, in one case, he uh, a, a, a rookie and and a rookie I forget which one it was. One of the pitchers uh, told me that he uh, he came onto the team as a rookie and he um, he he wanted to know where he could find. Uh, decent housing because he was only making maybe two thousand dollars for the summer you know uh the the pay was was meager uh so griffith, griffith said oh just you go into a hotel and i'll we'll pay the bill just don't worry about that for now uh that was one example um george case the third who is the son of george case jr the major league player who played for washington for a number of years uh and he was a fine fine center fielder for the team in fact he won the um stolen base title in, in the american league for about five years very fast uh he told me that, uh his dad went into clark griffiths one time and he said look yeah Please, I really need a bit more money. You got to raise my salary. So Griffith said, "Okay, I'll give you a five hundred dollar bonus." He said, "But at the end of the year, if we don't make money, I'm going to ask you ask you ask you to give it back <laughs> the five hundred dollars." So I mean, that's the kind of situation Griffith uh, had. He did make he did rent out the stadium. He rented the stadium out for the to the Redskins as well. And but aside from that, he was very very generous in uh organizing uh, uh fund dry, uh, drives for the uh for the uh, GIs to raise money for the army and the navy uh welfare organizations they had special events at Griffith Stadium dollar nights uh where everybody had to pay including the ball players and the money went to uh these funds so uh, he, he was very good with money uh but but who didn't have, as Josh said, and it was true, he did not have the outside income that would have allowed him to sort of use the team as his pastime. It was his business. Yeah, in fact, the, the, um, David mentioned some of the players and how much they loved him. I, uh, Clark Griffith was known as the old fox, and uh, I believe we, you know, he often referred to his players they would, themselves as a bunch of kids. So they, it was almost like they were his children in a way how he took care of them. But as David said, they were not, you know, back then, obviously paid very well compared to baseball players. Now you would never think of them needing to, you know, number one, they wouldn't, you wouldn't hear, the, hear about them giving bonuses back. But uh, on top of that, uh, you wouldn't think of them needing to worry about money for a hotel or something of that nature, or food, things of that, things of that nature. But he was, uh, they, did, they did absolutely respect and love uh, him as, as, an, as an owner. How does the dynamic uh, of the Senators and, and running Griffith Stadium and, and, and having the Grays in, in there as well, how does that dynamic, if, if at all, that we've just established change, given now that the, the war is uh, full on, uh, on the field, off the field, how dramatic are the changes, I guess, in the way that Griffith approaches not only his team, but the, but the running of his enterprise? 
and maybe as a tableau against sort of baseball generally uh, as the war looms? Yeah, there were a couple of major major shifts, major changes during the war. Um, one of them being that uh, the uh, war, uh, which board, I forget, the, uh, the War Mobilization Board, I believe it was called, uh, determined that uh, the, the, for one reason or other, they were, well, what they were trying to do was save uh, space on, on the railroads. The teams traveled by railroad in those days. Uh, so they, they uh, banned the uh, teams from going to Florida and California for spring training. They had to stay within a reasonable distance from their home stadium. Well, of course, you know, right now there's snow on the ground here in, in Washington, and there'll probably be some snow come uh, late, uh, later in February uh, when the teams come out to practice. So it's not, the, it's not the best venue for playing. But what happened was, and again, this shows the generosity of, of, of uh, Clark Griffith. Um, uh, when he was providing the troops, uh, the, the doughboys with the equipment, he also befriended uh, President Byrd of the young University of Maryland. Uh, he gave him uh, equipment for his uh, little baseball team, college baseball team, and Byrd never forgot that. So when the, when the teams were forced to practice to have spring training near their own stadium, he offered the University of Maryland uh, facilities to Griffith. So Griffith's teams for three years uh, did not go down to Florida. They played, uh, they used to, uh, Tinker Field in Orlando was where they uh, had their routine uh, spring training. So they couldn't go down there. So they practiced uh, and had their health spring training uh, very often indoors. Uh, the Ritchie the Fieldhouse, I think, right, David, in Maryland? <laughs> The what? I think, it was, I think it was called the Ritchie Fieldhouse or something no, like that. It was a lot of uh, Cole Fieldhouse. Cole Fieldhouse. Yeah, they were inside a lot. Yeah, you know? inside yeah. a lot. So that yeah. was one thing. And then another uh, aspect of this, the wartime, was that because the um, there were so many camps, army camps and Navy facilities in and around the D.C. area, and most of them had a, uh, a baseball team. And so Griffith was able to take his team and and practice with real you know with real games the teams are pretty good um so that was one aspect of how griffith was able to uh you know use uh use what was available at the time for the negro leagues uh when those restrictions went in that was a re- uh, a real t- tough road to hoe because the negro league teams uh, if you look at the history of it, and probably the best history of the Negro League teams was um, was called Beyond the Shadow of the Senators uh, by Brad Snyder, and it's a wonderful history of the, the formation of the leagues and everything. Uh, before the war in the 30s, as these teams were being formed, folding, there were a whole bunch of these uh, Negro t- League teams Come out, and I'm lumping them all as Negro League. They weren't all in, in the, the two ne- main Negro Leagues that we think about. But they barnstormed uh, across the South and the Midwest, uh, and that's where they picked up extra money. Now, on Sunday, uh, Saturday and Sunday, they would play in Griffith Stadium. They played in Yankee Stadium uh, when the Yankees, of course, were out of town. And that's where they, those were the official games. So the money that came for came to the Negro Leagues 
was primarily from the uh, barnstorming. But with the restrictions on uh, the gas, they, they were popularly known as the gasoline restrictions, uh, but the restrictions actually were, were to save rubber. It wasn't because they weren't short of gasoline. Uh, that's another misnomer uh, or misunderstanding that baseball fans and other fans have. That during the war, well, they they instituted um, restrictions on gasoline. Uh, well, they did, but the gasoline restrictions were because that was the only measurable uh, commodity that they could uh, that they could measure when it came to uh, how do you how do you measure the, the amount of time a car was driven and the, the rubber on the tires. You can, uh, but you can, you, if you limit the amount of gasoline that goes into the car, that also limits the amount of time the, the tires can be worn. So uh, they, they limited that. And that really hurt the Negro Leagues because it meant that they're barnstorming by these rickety old buses. And they're shown in some of the films, I think 41, there's a scene of that on the bus. They're almost like old school buses. Uh, so, the, uh, so during the war, they lost a lot of money on that, but they made a lot of money because only a few of the, of the stars actually um, went into the war. So, uh, so that was one thing that uh, uh, they, they, the teams did very well. Their e annual East-West All-Star Game, which was played uh, in your neck of the woods, Tim, in, in uh, Wrigley Field, uh, or no, Comiskey. It was played at Comiskey. Uh, they would act, average about 35,000 fans for this big game. It actually outdrew the, the Major League All-Star Game on occasion. And, and one year, it wasn't even an All-Star Game. So there, there was an attraction then maybe to domicile uh, teams then instead of having them on the road. So so maybe having the Homestead Grays having sort of a second home at Griffith Stadium became more an, of an attractive business proposition? Absolutely. Because as, as, uh, as Josh said, uh, Washington's large uh, black population uh, was just ripe for this. And plus the, the team, the teams loved, the Negro League teams loved to come into Washington because they were treated well. Griffith, by the way, did not have a segregated uh, section of, the, of Griffith Stadium uh, set aside for African Americans. There was, there was a section where they sat, but it wasn't like they couldn't sit anywhere else. They just sort of gravitated to this left field uh, area there uh, off the third baseline. Um, there was never any formal restrictions uh, at Griffith Stadium about, you know, uh, whites only, coloreds only, that sort of thing. So that was another thing that, that the uh, black community in D.C. sort of enjoyed. Plus, the teams had... They had black restaurants. They had uh, black nightclubs in in town. They had all the amenities uh, of a well. It was a major major city, uh, which they didn't find in in Homestead or even in Pittsburgh or some of the other cities in the circuit. So that's that was one of the main reasons. Uh, and Griffith did, you know, Griffith took a lot of pressure uh, on his shoulders because he was not ready to bring uh, an African-American ball player to the team. Uh, and it wasn't because, uh, because of uh, segregation. It was because he knew, uh, being such an astute baseball man and, and finance per man, uh, that it would kill the Negro Leagues, which it did. 
and he would lose the rent. Yeah, he lose the rent to the stadium, sure. as David yeah. was saying. And and yeah. and also the other thing that we didn't mention is the uh, Homestead Grays, unlike the Nationals, were a superpower team. I mean, they were amazing. They had Josh Gibson, they had Cool Papa Bell. Uh, they won, I believe, it was nine uh, Negro National League titles in a row. They won, I think, two or three World Series during that period of time. So they were kind of the polar opposite of, of, the, of the Nationals being, you know, uh, last place or uh, that type of thing. So they, they, they you know, we, we, I just figured we'd, we probably should mention how, how good they were. And they have numerous players that are in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, oh, my God. I mean, I would argue that's, uh, that saying that they were good is, is uh, it's probably – Yeah, they were statement. great. They were superpower. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so Josh, were, they, yeah, maybe we can use that as – I'm curious as to sort of how, how the Grays – came to D.C. versus, say, going to another city. So did you guys get into sort of the the dynamics of, of how Griffith and the Grays sort of came to an agreement and why D.C. became their home away from home versus, say, other locations? Well, Sam Lacey, uh, who was the, one of the top black sports writers uh, in the country, his columns were syndicated in the Africa, African-American newspapers uh, in Baltimore and Washington and, and elsewhere. Um, he was instrumental in bringing the team to play in Washington, um, and he, he fought for... Uh, he wanted to, he wanted to uh, bring about integration of the sports, uh, as did all of the the uh, black uh, sports writers at the time. But Lacey, in particular, was the loud voice, um, in the, sort of the Howard Cosell of, of sports sports uh, casters, um, and and so he convinced the, uh, Gus Greenlee was the owner of the. Um, owner of the the Grays and convinced Greenlee to bring the team. Greenlee was always looking for to make make money. One of the things about the Negro League teams is that they were so so terribly disorganized. Um, I rem- in fact it was Sam Lacey, I believe I was at a, uh, a they did a presentation for Arthur Ashe uh, shortly before he died and it was uh, covered in DC and I, I went to cover it and um, I think it was Sam Lacey was still alive. He, he lived to be quite a, an old uh, man and he uh, was talking about how hard it was to actually given the t- t- totals of games because so many of the games were not uh, official. Uh, how do you count how many home runs uh, you know someone hit in, in the Negro leagues, um, uh, or how many how many wins? Uh, cool, uh, um, Satchel Page or Satchel Page? Had, yeah. yeah, how many wins they had because they pitched on the road on, the, uh, on during the barnstorming, then they pitched in Yankee Stadium. You know they went from some dirt field um, in. Kentucky, let's say, to pitching in Yankee Stadium. Well, how do you keep track of this? Because you could keep track of it if, if you followed the uh, African-American newspapers, but even they were unable to – they didn't have a, 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 an assigned beat writer with these teams. They, when they, uh, if you look at some of the black papers, you'll find – some games are covered, and then they jump to other games. So it was very difficult for them to uh, to actually uh, be considered. In fact, that was one of the excuses that uh, uh, Major League Baseball gave for not integrating at least 
one or two of the teams, there was an idea of, well, we'll bring in the Kansas City Monarchs, which was the other main uh, major league. The, it was like the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees. Um, those two teams dominated the East and the West uh, leagues. Um, but they ne- they never did and the and the easiest reason major league baseball game well you so, you're too disorganized you, you you know we can't have this disorganization in major league baseball and i will say also uh, in terms of research that what david said it rings very true in terms of trying to find stats for the negro league games and and and, and years and and careers uh, they're just very, very sporadic, um, and it's for the reasons that David said, because they barnstormed, and they played in different places, and they weren't covered. They didn't have uh, beat reporters on them, so it uh, it often it was very difficult to find any kind of real accurate stats um, on, on a lot of these guys uh, for the Grays. Yeah, for, exa- for example, Josh Gibson, there's... there's been a recurring story for many, many years that Josh Gibson is the only ball player ever to hit a home run fair out of Yankee Stadium, Uh, the old Yankee Stadium, of course, we're talking about. Uh, There's no record of it. Now, if they couldn't find a record of that in New York, um, well, granted, the the Negro Leagues were not covered as as deeply uh, as as the American and National League were, but there's no record of it. Yet, the, the story persists that he did that. So I, what, what I'm, I'm really curious, though, is to so given Homestead and in, in, uh, being sort of domiciled in, in western Pennsylvania, why not Cleveland? Why not Pittsburgh? Why not Philadelphia? Why not some other urban area that also had some substantial African-American population that would sustain a franchise? Why Washington, D.C., based on what you could tell? That's a good question. Uh, as I said, I think it's because at the you know, a lot of those cities, uh, for example, Kansas City. Kansas City and St. Louis uh, were very, very segregated cities, St. Louis in particular. Um, the, 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 the nationals slash senators um, had lots of fights with the St. Louis Browns because their players were so bigoted, and the team uh, and the city was uh, very, band, very much yeah. se- segregated. Washington, uh, Greenlee, and Lacey uh, were, were instrumental in, in mo- bringing the team. They still were the ha- Homestead Grays, but they more and more they played in, in D.C. And uh, because of the facilities there, uh, Washington probably had the, the largest black population of any major city at the time. Um, that was and that, uh, a population that was pretty much free to move around, uh, there were restrictions on, on the uh, on the uh, trolleys. I remember that as a little kid, going onto a trolley in, in D.C. and um, you know seeing the section coloreds only in the back of the thing uh, from uh, coming from New York. That was really quite a shock to see that in you know in person. But but for the most part, they had a, and they also had a. We had, we've talked about them being a, a large population in this. There were also a prosperous percentage. 
uh, of uh, black families. They had jobs. They had good. They had government jobs. They had other jobs. They weren't all, you know, housekeepers or um, day laborers. They uh, there was a large middle class that I'm sure was very attractive to uh, to the uh, to Greenlee and the other uh, black financiers and and bankers in in D.C. All right, we're going to take a quick, brief pause. And uh, we want to remind you that our friends at Audible uh, are offering to you, our listeners, an opportunity to get a free audiobook download uh, from their amazing array of over 190,000 titles to choose from. Uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and that's the place to go to get your free audiobook download, courtesy of us and Audible. Uh, and uh, it's just something you can cancel at any time and you can uh, keep the book for as long as your device uh, exists. And like I said before, there's just a ton of choices uh, available to you to burn up that free credit, uh, including a bunch in the realm of our forgotten sports little genre here, uh, including uh, in the realm of basketball. If you fancy yourself a fan of the old ABA, for example, uh, two great books on the great Julia Serving that might be uh, worth uh, uh, using your credit for. One, of course, is the... Uh, uh, the Rise and Rise of Julia Serving. It's called Doc, and it's written by Vincent Malazzi and uh, narrated by David Cromet. You could use your credit for that book, uh, and it's a great sort of uh, interview-style uh, 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 background on the uh, life and times of Dr. J uh, from uh, from all sides. Uh, but if that's not good enough for you, why not try the autobiography? It's called Dr. J, the autobiography, of course. It's written by Dr. J in, in concert with uh, Carl Greenfeld. And it's narrated by Dr. J himself, Julia Serving. Uh, and uh, you could use your credit for that book, as well as, like I said, thousands and thousands of other books, not just only in basketball and basketball history, but in a whole host of genres and topics. By all means, give them a try. Why don't you? It's risk-free, for God's sakes. Audibletrial.com slash good seats. Yes, audibletrial.com slash good seats. That's the link. Uh, and that's where you're going to get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time. And once you do download that book for free, and uh, after you cancel it, if you if you choose to do that, it's yours to keep. So you can enjoy uh, in perpetuity for as long as your device lives. Uh, they download a book free and gratis, courtesy of uh, yours truly here at Good Seats Still Available and our friends at Audible. Thank you, Audible. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you uh, joining our conversation once again. So let, let's talk about sort of the, the, the war and baseball, right? Because um, you, you're, you're mentioning before that uh, the Negro Leagues didn't seem to uh, be injured too much in terms of their la uh, loss of talent uh, by the draft and, 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 and the, uh, the, the ramping up of the machinery needed to, to fight the war. But clearly Major League Baseball uh, was hit very hard in terms of, uh, of quality players being drafted uh, and uh, and going off to uh, to more uh, serious pursuits versus playing baseball. So how did that give us uh, give the audience a sense of 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 how baseball sort of changed? I mean, the Senators were not all that great going into the war. Let's be let's be honest. Um, no, did it make of course. A substantial mm -hmm. difference uh, to the Senators uh, and and just generally how does how does baseball you know sort of limp along? I guess, or if it did limp along, 
uh, during this period of time in D.C.? No, it didn't limp along, especially in D.C., because uh, because Griffith, as I said, had, he had ladies' nights. He, 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 each year, when the, when the owners got together, he would push for more night games. Night games were his real bread and butter. In the, the, uh, the, with all the uh, uh, people in the service, working days, uh, the night games. In fact, he actually was the creator of the old twi-night doubleheader. Uh, the game, the first game would start about four o'clock. Now keep in mind that those games would last like an hour and 50 minutes. Two hours was a long game because they didn't have interruptions for TV commercials. So they could play. They could start a, a, a doubleheader and Griffith Stadium had lights. They could start a doubleheader at 4, 4.30 in the afternoon and many people would, could get off work, you know, an hour early or maybe, maybe come in in the second or third inning of the first game. So uh, each year, uh, Griffith added more of these night games and twi-night doubleheaders. Uh, and of course, in those days, that was all single admission. You didn't have the, what they have now, where you have to leave the stadium and then come back for the second uh, game if you have tickets for both games. So uh, he did very well on that score uh, during the war. And, um, he, and of course, he rented the stadium to the Redskins. In fact, one year, I think it was 44. Five and 45, uh, he, he rented the stadium to the uh, Redskins, and they, the Redskins had like uh, the last two games were at the stadium, and to to make uh, to complete the Major League Baseball season, they had to double up on double headers. So, and and a number of the players felt that that was the reason they just missed out on winning the pennant because arms were shot. The pitchers were pitching a double header. Uh, they something like twenty some odd double headers in but one I month. Twenty eight one year or something. Yeah, twenty eight yeah. double headers. I mean, in, you know, in one month. So. Um, that, but but that Josh, Josh the, the player pool, though, right, was a little thin, but, but oh, ironically, it, it, it helped the center. The centers actually it did. It became more competitive uh, over a couple of seasons. It, no? it, it did. I, I think it's interesting you mentioned that because it, it did help them. Um, they, there were so many players, obviously, that were off, in, off at the war uh, overseas, and uh, it, it definitely uh, the, the Nationals were, were affected as, as badly as anybody else. Um, but, but the interesting part is Griffith was uh, very resourceful, and he would find players in different places. Uh, for example, he, was, uh, he, wasn't, he didn't push integration because, as David said, uh, he, would, he knew he would lose the uh, rent from the, from, the, from the grades, and they had some obviously great players that would have made a huge difference at that time, but it just, it just didn't happen. But he did uh, bring Cuban players up um, from – from you know, and other other players from that area, you know, from Central America and Cuba, to play uh, for the Nationals. And of course, there was a skin color bias, you know, uh, bias and racism, where these were light-skinned uh, uh, Cuban players. Um, but as a result of of kind of being resourceful, uh, I think he was good at finding players that that, that helped a little bit. Uh, and gave them a little bit of an advantage. It kind of reminded me as a kid watching the uh, NFL strike, and I think it was in the 80s, uh, the teams that picked the kind of uh, the players off the, you know, the replacement players, the teams that were better at that uh, and paid more attention to that had an advantage when the real players came back um, because they had better records. But uh, in his case, he, by getting these different players from, the, you know, David mentioned uh, Burt Shepard, 
He was a, uh, a one-legged uh, pitcher. They, they, they fought with the Yankees over getting him. He ended up only pitching one game. It didn't make that huge of a difference, obviously. But, um, you know, uh, th- these were the kinds of things that he was doing throughout the entire war, uh, was getting players from all different sources. I mean, they had a guy named Ed Boland who was a uh, – he was literally a, a trash man. You yeah. know, he, worked, he worked for the uh, New York Sanitation Department. And he didn't play very much. He played well when they had him. But uh, he actually uh, had LaGuardia uh, give, give Bowen. Bowen didn't want to leave his job at the sanitation department because he was getting paid too well. And, uh, and his pension. He didn't want to. Yeah, a pension. Every, yeah. So, so the, as a result. Uh, Griffith he, went to Griffith. LaGuardia. To LaGuardia. And, and asked him for, you know, could, could Boland have another month off to play for the Nationals? So these were the kind of things that, that, that went on where he, you know, was resourceful in finding these stopgap players to fill in um, for the guys who were gone for, you know, guys like, uh, you know, they, they were all, you know, most of them were gone for the, for, the, for the war period. So as a result, that did make them a little bit better and did give them a little bit of an advantage was his resourcefulness. He had two, two great players, Buddy Lewis and Cecil Travis, who uh, went off to war. And Travis, Buddy Lewis was a pilot and flew the hump. He flew several mm-hmm. hundred missions. 300 yeah, over the you know, over the mountains there uh, into Burma, and um, Cecil Travis was uh, at the Battle of the Bulge and uh, lost uh, several toes on his foot from frostbite, and um, he never was the same after that. Uh, he's sometimes been called the best ball player not to have made the Hall of Fame. So given given DC's you know uh, obviously uh, place as the as the nation's uh, capital and obviously the the uh, the center of of all things uh, war information and 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 all of that and that of of a uh, still relatively thriving baseball sort of uh, uh, environment during those years, um, what was sort of the the overlap was was baseball and, and given sort of the the stage that uh, it uh, conveniently sort of offered politicians and whatnot. Was it a solve for, you know, uh, a war weary and uh, uh, beleaguered and, and frankly, uh, oftentimes frightened and worried uh, country? Uh, or was it looked upon as uh, frivolous and, and, and maybe something that uh, shouldn't have been done? Um, it seems like it's a, a very tenuous sort of time uh, for baseball in Washington, D.C., uh, given sort of the, uh, the dual nature of maybe why the sport uh, should or should not be played uh, during those years. Yeah, well, that that was a controversy that actually um, lasted for pretty much during the war years. You raised a good point. Uh, uh, they there was that feeling that it was frivolous, and it wasn't just Washington; it was throughout the game. Uh, all this, but in Washington in particular, uh, because of the great num- number of, of service personnel and um, and war uh, war. Uh, employees, um, they di- they did enjoy the games. They did go. They did go to Griffith Stadium. Uh, their attendance figures were pretty good. A couple of years, I think they actually outdrew uh, the Yankees uh, in attendance in terms of uh, the price of tickets and things like that. Um, so it, it lasted for a good. In fact, there was a, a controversy in the paper uh, uh, papers about. 
uh, well, you know, the, the games are being played, but should they really continue? And they did a poll. They took a poll of the, the servicemen, and the servicemen said, oh, yeah, you know, we have to, uh, we really like to hear what's going on. Uh, yeah, keep the game going. It was an overwhelmingly popular thing to do. Uh, and, of course, uh, baseball figured uh, somewhat in the war effort too, because they use code words. You know, uh, who's the Dodger second baseman? If, and uh, the Germans, who, you know, were trying to uh, uh, infiltrate uh, with a, a good English accent. Oh, during know, the battle, the bulge, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. They didn't know. So, so the the GIs themselves and the sailors, of course. They all wanted the game to continue. So when that poll came out, I think that dampened anyone, you know, anyone's feelings of, uh, you know, let's let's stop this thing. Uh, and they played. There was only one year when uh, I think it was '43 when there was no All-Star game. Um, uh, so the, everything continued as in the past. And and truth be told. Uh, although the greatest ball players, the Maggios, Bob Fellas, um, Ted Williams, Greenberg. Like that, Hank Greenberg, especially, uh, yeah, uh, uh, they were lost for the duration of the war. But a, a couple, like Hank Greenberg, came back in 1945. Great story about Hank Greenberg. Yeah, uh, just a second, I'll, I'll truncate it. Greenberg uh, came back and right away resumed hitting home runs. So they were playing like the the last game of the season, uh, and it was Detroit against uh, St. Louis. Whichever team won was going to win the pennant, and uh, they the St. Louis Browns. For some reason, the manager decided to walk the batter ahead. There was a runner on second base. The score was either tied. Yeah, it was tied. They, uh, they walked. The, he intentionally gave a pass to the batter ahead of. Hank Greenberg, uh, so it, there was like, I think it, it actually loaded the bases. Loaded the bases, uh, yeah. Yeah, loaded the bases, and they let Hank Greenberg come up and hit, and of course he hit a grand slam home run. So the Tigers won. I mean, to my mind, that's one of the worst decisions ever made by any manager. <laughs> you know, to walk the, the batter ahead of Hank Greenberg and let him hit. Uh, and so he was back in time uh, before the war actually ended. And um, so, I mean, even though the big stars were off to the war, um, in many cases, the teams themselves were able to compete. An interesting addition to what David was talking about with Hank Greenberg hitting that grand slam. Uh, actually, David interviewed uh, some of the Nationals, and they were, I believe, waiting at Union Station. In yes, DC that's right. Mm-hmm. Because they weren't sure whether or not they were going to win the pennant or not. And that that knocked them out. And that's how, so basically as a result of that, uh, they, they were done and they had a chance to win, win a pennant when, you know, they're talking about, again, we're talking about a team really didn't have a lot of success. So this would have made a huge difference. And, uh, they, they lost out because of that Hank Greenberg grand slam. Yeah. If, uh, if the if St. Louis had won, they would have had a one game playoff yeah. between the Browns. That's right. And yeah. The playoff. Yeah. yeah that's mm-hmm. correct. I think yeah. it's also very interesting, generally, when you take both the, uh, uh, and this is sort of the on-field play, right, of both the Senators and the Grays, right? Um, in many respects, and I don't have any comparative data in front of me at my fingertips, but um, you had actually some very competitive teams across both of them, right? You had the, the, the Grays winning uh, the Negro League World Series in, in 43 and 44, and, and even 
the Senators were competitive uh, in 43, albeit, you know, more than 10, 12 games behind right. uh, the Yankees that right. season. But in 45, they were only a game and a half out of winning the uh, their division and, and going into the World Series themselves. So it seems like if I was a Washington, D.C. baseball fan at that time, I almost had sort of a, maybe a semi-embarrassment of riches given both of these clubs being relatively competitive, in the case of the Grays, uh, championship caliber. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the Grays were, you know, the, because they had Gibson and Cool Papa Bell, and, uh, and like David said, you know, them, they and the Monarchs were the, were the uh, dynasties of the time in the Negro Leagues. So they, they, they were an embarrassment of riches for, you know, nine, ten years in a row, uh, especially in their own league. And uh, the Nationals yeah, had, had way more success um, during the war years, again, I think because, because, the, because of the uh, dearth of talent in the major leagues and players being overseas from all the different teams and all the big stars. Um, and it, it may have, you know, evened it out a bit um, because they were able to find, you know, little little uh, kind of trinkets of gold, so to speak, in some of these uh, part, you know, players that normally wouldn't be playing that Griffith found um, as a result of that. Yeah, and, and Kansas City, of course, had, uh, in '45 had Jackie Robinson. That was his one year in the in the. Uh, 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 that was his last year in the Negro Leagues. The next year he was with Montreal um, and um, Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn Dodger farm system. Uh, so the, those two teams were were definitely the the two best in the Negro Leagues, and and they and Kansas City uh, had a decent size uh, black population as well. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and then of course that. They they just crumbled. By the early fifties, they were they were gone. The Negro Leagues were gone. Griffith was right. Uh, integration killed them. Yeah, let, let's uh, well let's uh, round third base on, on that and sort of use this sort of as as a uh, as a tip off to sort of uh, what transpired after the war ended. But uh, before I I, I do want to ask you one last question. Do you, did you guys get into uh, comparatively? how each of the teams did uh, uh, at the box office, so to speak? I mean, did the Grays and or the Senators, were they, were they equal in terms of their drawing power and, uh, and, and adding to you know, Griffith's business here, or, or did one kind of outdraw the other? I mean, was there, I'm curious as to the, dy- the business dynamic between these two clubs uh, and arguably from sort of two different uh, uh, business bases, I guess, of fans. Well, of course, the 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 Nationals, the Senators, um, outdrew uh, out, outdrew uh, the the Grays simply because the Grays only played there on weekends when Washington was away. So Washington played many many more games at Griffith Stadium than the Homestead Grays did. So I don't think it's a, you know it's, it's a fair comparison. Both, as I said earlier, uh, Washington did very well at the box office during the war, and and the Grays did as well. Um, but I, I don't think it's a fair comparison. Um, you know, to, to, because of the day they played all these, Washington played all these day games during the week, and even if they drew only maybe five, six thousand people, uh, the Grays were off somewhere. Uh, attempting to barnstorm or not even uh, when they had to ride the trains and that really cut into their uh, their expenses to buy yeah, railroad tickets um, they could, because they couldn't use the buses 
So I don't think it's, you know, I, I don't think it would tell us very much. Um, but but it seems like the, the, but when the um, when the Grays were in town, that they still drew very well as well, though, right? For their even though they had. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, the real draw became was that East West game played in Chicago. Um, they, they, you couldn't get a ticket to that game. In the book, we get into some of the numbers in terms of the gate and the box office. Uh, but as David said, you know, the Nationals had uh, many more games at Griffith Stadium than, than the Grays did. So as a result, it's a hard comparison to make um, in terms of who made more money and that kind of thing because there, there were less, less Grays games at, at Griffith Stadium. Um, but they, they both drew very well. And uh, the attendance figures, we get into some of that in the book as well with some of the games. And during the year, as David said, uh, the Nationals led, you know, the league in attendance. And I think a lot of that also was because of some of the transient population that came down through D.C. during the war for the war effort, whether they were working, you know, uh, in the War Department or other other parts of the government. There were a lot of people that, you know, D.C. swelled as a city grew um, as people came down there to, you know, help with the war effort. All right, so so let's let's talk about sort of the aftermath, right? So the the, the war ending in in uh, you know for good in the late latter part of uh, of forty five. Um, you know, it's interesting what happens to to each of these teams and and baseball in D.C. And it's interesting to me that in both cases, for different reasons, um, the future wasn't uh, nearly as bright, perhaps during as as it was during these four or five years. Uh, that we've uh, we've spent talking about. Do you want to sort of get into sort of the uh, the legacy of what uh, the senators sort of uh, stumbled through for the, the the decade that followed, as well as I think you kind of hinted at it. What happened to sort of the Grays and and the Negro Leagues generally? Um, you know, uh, in the aftermath of all of this. Well, I would be remiss if I, I and I really wanted to tell this is a, a story that uh, turns out it was not known just about anywhere else uh, in doing our research I came across this in on April 12th 45 um, it was just before the, the seasons usually opened around the 18th or 20th of April uh, one of the one of the things that uh, Griffith did every year was he presented Roosevelt with a, a gold-plated pass that he could go to a, as many games as he wanted to. Well, of course, during the war, he didn't because he, he even had to stop throwing out the first ball at the opening game uh, because of the war effort. But he would get this pass every year. And uh, in 45, um, he'd also given one to his new vice president, Roosevelt's new vice president, Harry Truman, uh, so he could go to the games. And of course, on April 12th, Truman, uh, Truman became president when Roosevelt died uh, down in Warm Springs, Georgia. Uh, but Truman had started out uh, uh, the, the morning as the vice president with his pass. And uh, he must have dictated to his secretary, uh, because I saw it on the screen, uh, on Vice President Stationery, a thank you note to Clark Griffith saying, thank you for this pass, um, I'm you know, looking forward to it, etc. Um, just to sort of curse, uh, thank you note. However, at the bottom of it, in, in Truman's own handwriting, which I sent to the Truman Library, and they said, yeah, that's his handwriting, uh, was a second note 
saying, well, uh, you know, to the effect that, well, things have drastically changed, and I think I'm in for it now. Um, so between the letter being written and the time uh, Truman got to sign it, uh, he found out that he was now the president. And... Um, he still had the, you know, he still had the the presence of mind, the goodness of heart, to just pen this additional note onto it. I mean, you can imagine what was, you know, the the things that were befalling him at that moment, and yet he still did that. Now I checked all over. I even checked in David McCulloch's huge uh, Truman volume, and there's no mention of that. Uh, it showed up in a uh, uh, an online collector's. Um, a, a post a page of uh, documents, signed documents that he owned. Uh, they wouldn't allow me to uh, reproduce it in the book, although I tried. So I could, I was, uh, we were able to uh, talk about it. But just think about that: the very, the very day that Franklin Roosevelt dies, Truman and Truman is now president. He still has time to write a thank you note to Clark Griffith. And he too was a big baseball fan, so so that in itself helped to uh, transition out of the war years and into baseball in the late forties and early fifties. Uh, Truman and Eisenhower, but fortunately for baseball, the presidents in those days were big baseball fans. Yeah, it seems it seems like it seems like Truman uh, among uh, uh, most many of the presidents seemed to be uh, quite. Uh, uh, Photogenic and available for uh, for a lot of those uh, first pitches and, and whatnot, maybe relative to his uh, predecessors and and uh, uh, folks afterwards. Well, you know, he was ambidextrous, so one year he would throw it out right-handed, and the next year he threw it out left-handed. <laughs> Interesting. So, so did, yeah, Josh, maybe you could sort of want us through. So, so what, what? Give us a little bit of a of a, the two tributaries of sort of what what happens with the the senators in the years that follow, as well as the Grays in the years that follow. Well, I think the, the biggest thing that happens to the Grays is uh, obviously Jackie Robinson gets signed by, um, uh, by Branch Rickey, and that changes, as David said, it sort of changes the whole way. The Negro Leagues are sort of after the war years are starting to, as they integrate uh, the Negro Leagues into the major leagues, uh, it basically, the Negro Leagues start to see their end. And um, obviously they ended later in the, in the 40s or late early 50s. But um, but basically, they as they were merge, you know, as they were integrating, uh, you know, it, and it ended that. So the uh, the forty five signing of Jackie Robinson, of him being sent to the Montreal Royals, and then obviously breaking the color barrier in forty seven, um, and and joining the Dodgers. Uh, that that's one of the biggest. I guess you would say of the tributaries of the of the end of the war, and there was a lot of um, I think we probably got into it a little bit, but there were there was a lot of uh, back and forth about whether or not during the war the league should have been integrated, and obviously they weren't. But the the African American press was was questioning, you know, why they weren't doing this, and there were a couple of kind of false tryouts, kind of with uh, some of the some of the Negro League players where. Major League teams would 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 have these kind of uh, fake try you know try they would they would say they were trying out these players, but then they had absolutely no interest in signing them. They weren't going to do anything, and um, you know and Griffith also, as David mentioned earlier, you know had an opportunity 
he could have uh, integrated his team with, with you know, Josh Gibson and, and Cool Papa Bell and, and, and many other players who were right there on his doorstep. But he didn't primarily, we believe, because he, uh, you know, was needed the money from the from the revenue from the uh, rent that he was getting from the Grays. But after the war, as you know, as we know, there was, uh, you know, a push for uh, desegregation. Uh, Truman desegregated the military, I believe, in 1947. Um, so, so all these things kind of come to a head. And as a result of that, at the end of the war, uh, that's one of the two big things that changed. The other big thing changed that changed was night baseball. Um, there were many more night games after this. It, matter of fact, Griffith was pushing, I believe, other teams were doing about seven night games to 14 night games, and he would, he would usually push to get more because he was in D.C. Um, they weren't allowed, for the beginning of the war at least, to have night games in New York City, because they were afraid the U-boats could see, uh, you know, things that were silhouetted by the lights. They could see shipping and all that kind of thing in New York Harbor. So they had to shut that down um, and play during the day. Uh, yeah, that was that was Ebbets Field because the Yankee Stadium didn't even. Yeah, I'm have sorry. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in yeah in New York, and they and also yeah Ebbets Field and also uh, the Polo Grounds, but, I believe. Yeah, they were closer also. to the water. Closer, closer to the to water. The yeah. Yeah, so they, they couldn't play night games there. Thank you, David, for I, I, those two uh, corrections. And um, so they couldn't play night games primarily because they were afraid of the, the U-boats being able to see the shipping come out. But um, I'm digressing a little. I'm just basically making the point that the main differences were the integration as a result of the Jackie Robinson signing and then uh, obviously in the American League, Cleveland, you know, bringing in the, the first black player in the American League. And then, of course, uh, all the way through Boston being the last with Pumpsy Green. So um, that's one of the two. And then the second is, is the night games uh, being played more and more often. And then later TV, obviously, which uh, changed the game in a tremendous way. And, we, and the, we touch on, but yeah, and and the senators in particular though seem to just stumble their way through for the next fifteen years to the point of yeah, they were they were they were terrible, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you think that that after all of that, you know, and 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 having survived the war and and through the wiliness of the the old fox of of, of Clark Griffith that uh, that uh, you know, and integration, frankly, right, having some of the arguably right. some of the best. Uh, Negro League players uh, not only come through Griffith Stadium during that time, but also uh, literally on the Grays themselves, uh, that that they would have somehow uh, figured out a way to, shall we say, better themselves on the field. But it never really happened, now, did it? No, no. And, and David, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe uh, the Nationals were among the last teams um, to integrate, were they not? Yes, they were. Um, and of course, the interesting thing about, uh, as Josh mentioned, the Red Sox being the last to uh, to integrate. Uh, the Red Sox actually, as Josh alluded to, the Red Sox actually gave Jackie Robinson one of these faux tryouts early on. Um, they sent him and two other uh, the uh, two other Negro League players up to uh, Boston uh, because there was there was some political activity going on in Boston uh, and that they wanted to quash and so they uh, invited these three ball players up and there was no one there of real uh, who was really involved with the 
player personnel on the team. There was one, a couple of minor league, not minor league, but minor officials on the Red Sox, and they never even sent them. You know, they never even acknowledged it afterwards. There was no follow up, no thank you very much, but nothing, nothing like that happened. So, uh, and uh, I know one area that we did forget to talk about in terms of uh, the Negro Leagues and their ability to sustain themselves, um, uh, it was um, when uh, they brought when the Negro Leagues brought in um, a, a, a spokesperson uh, for the team uh, for the leagues who was going to be the front man on uh, on the team and on the leagues to uh, you know to uh, help integrate the sport and um, unfortunately um, Josh help me out who did they, who did I'm, they? I'm blanking on who that no, would be uh, no he he um, he was a uh, uh, Paul uh, Paul Robeson. Oh, Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a com- He was a communist, was he not? That was the that problem. Was part of, kind of a problem. Yeah. That was yeah. the problem. Uh, yeah. They picked a, a, a socialist slash communist, outspoken, uh, very fine uh, singer, opera singer, uh, to be the front man on it, and of course. Uh, most Americans just turned their back on it. That was that was a disastrous decision. Um, even though he was well known to the American public, uh, he was not the right person to pick to lead integration movement. So uh, let's uh, uh, get your 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 current thoughts then about baseball, because obviously there was a a, um, a long uh, uh, dry spell once the second version of the uh, the senators left town and and. Uh, I'm curious to uh, to hear your thoughts about sort of uh, the current uh, iteration of of Washington's baseball franchise in, via the Nationals. It seems to me that there's been uh, quite a bit of uh, of effort uh, to um, to remember uh, some of the uh, major sort of events in Washington, D.C.'s baseball history uh, by the Nationals. I, I, I would argue it's, a, it's, bit, bit more, it's been more of, a, uh, of an embrace, I guess, than uh, perhaps some other sports and other teams uh, tend to look back on their, their previous legacies, right? It's, it's weird, right? We said this with our conversation with Fred Frommer uh, a number of weeks back, uh, that in many respects, the history of Washington baseball uh, is somewhat uh, transitory or, or, or not it is ironically deeply rooted, but yet not so. When you look at sort of the relatively peripatetic nature of the teams that have come and gone, right? And even today's version of the Nationals, right, is itself uh, the former Montreal Expos, right? But it does right. seem like there's been a an effort, and may, correct me if I'm wrong, to uh, remember and embrace this uh, very deep and, and interesting history of baseball in, in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, yeah, you're correct up to a point. I have a big uh, bone to pick with uh, the current ownership of the team. Um, when I went down to um, Orlando to do the research at Tinker Field, um, which was now just a, a, a good-looking baseball diamond, but it was 
that wasn't being used for that very much. But in front of the uh, main gates, there was a, a statue and a bronze plaque. It was a, a like a, it was a r- r- large rectangular with a statue with a baseball on top and this plaque uh, dedicated to Clark Griffith and, and de- detailing his his life in baseball. And I took some photographs of that. And uh, at the time they were planning, they, the city of Orlando didn't know what to do with it. It was it, it abutted uh, the uh, which the Citrus Bowl, uh, and they were going to knock it down because they needed more parking uh, facility. And I, I went to a couple of people here in D.C. who had in ins with the the new ownership. Uh, at the time, uh, and uh, because there were some things in the stadium that do reflect the original team uh, and its players, and but I said, you know, let's bring the plaque to Washington, install it in the stadium, and no one was interested in doing it. And in the book, there is a uh, the, the plaque. We I, one of the pictures I took of it is is in the um, actually my son took is in the is in the book. And sadly, um, I was I kept in contact with a, uh, a writer on the Orlando Sentinel, who uh, was following the, the, the city's uh, efforts to do whatever they were going to do with it. And sadly, uh, the plaque was stolen and never recovered. And I think that uh, that was a loss to uh, new na- the new national stadium, because I really think that would have been uh, something they would have wanted to have if they really thought about it. And they've never recovered it. I'm sure it was melted down at some point. So, I mean, I even offered to well, just take the photo and blow it up, because there's a lot of photos on the walls down there uh, of various aspects of, of the, the Washington franchise. I think what hurt was not only the fact that they had a, a crummy team in the, in the 50s, um, but they had this sort of faux team. They, they became uh, uh, an expansion team, and then the expansion team moved away to Minneapolis a few years later. And for, what, 30-some-odd years, there was no baseball in Washington. You mean to the Rangers. You said the expansion team moved. Yeah, Didn't the expansion team become the Rangers? That's right. And then yeah, they, they, yeah. the next day, then they had another team. Yeah. And they, they lasted from what? The first, yeah, the first was the Minnesota, and then the yeah. second. Yeah. Right. Clark Griffith's nephew moved them to Minnesota. Yeah. And then they. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and then, then as, as a result of that, um, Washington became the town that other owners used to threaten. Uh, the populace, when they wanted a, a new stadium, uh, when they wanted more money for uh, more revenue, well, you know, we can always move to Washington because there was. I believe the stadium. White Sox pulled that uh, one year. Yeah, I mean, get, a couple of them. A couple yeah. of them tried that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, there, there was no it, it was, rush. There was no yeah, rush. Yeah, thirty to, some odd years without a team. So yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will say, I will add to David's point. Um, I, we did a book signing, and the Lerner family was kind enough to host us at the stadium. Yes. And um, I noticed uh, a lot of um, baseball history that they paid attention, very good attention to, considering it was the former Montreal Expos. They had uh, many players on uh, pictures, you know, the streamers, whatever you want to call them, flags of different players from the past, including players from the Grays and players from yes. uh, the old Nats. 
Um, they, they, they paid, I think they paid, you know, aside from the plaque and the things of those nature, I think they paid a, a good amount of attention to their history and to the Washington baseball history, because again, it is kind of convoluted. I mean, here it is, you have the original nationals, the Griffith nationals going to Minneapolis when his nephew moves them. And then you have this kind of convoluted expansion team that's there later. And then I believe it's in 71, they are, they move to uh, Texas, Texas, Dallas, Dallas right. area, Arlington. So uh, Washington was kind of this, this baseball desert for a long time, as David said, and, and teams still do this, as we know, where they threaten to move to different cities. And in the NFL, it was Los Angeles for many years before they got two teams now, where they would threaten to do whatever it was to move there if they didn't get a new stadium. Um, it's a very common practice. Uh, matter of fact, in law school, I uh, wrote about this um, and did a, did, a couple pa- did a paper on this about how teams hold the cities hostage of where they are in order to move, uh, in order to threaten to move in order to get a better stadium. And now we're seeing stadiums built almost every 20 years when they used to be every 50 years, things of that nature. I mean, Atlanta is a good example. They had a new stadium in 96 and then they moved, uh, you know, to their new stadium a couple of years ago. Um, and then their football team did the same thing. Um, so there's, there's a lot of that. Um, but D.C. in general was used all the time for that purpose um, and a few other cities as well. I mean, I, I know Charlotte was mentioned a few times as expansion, uh, things, things like that. But I think the family itself, considering how convoluted, I keep saying the word, but it is, it's really odd how there's this kind of uh, all these different teams kind of floating in and out of D.C., They've done a pretty good job of, of being true to the history of it, considering that they came from Montreal. So they've also included those players as yes, well. Yes, that's true. And they, they use the stats. Um, of the, uh, yeah, they have to use this Montreal uh, Expo stats. Sort of like yes. the Cleveland Browns had the right uh, to keep their colors and their team when the Ravens went to Baltimore. So they, used the, you know, they got to keep all the stats. Uh, for the for the franchise that was promised to them that I believe was in Cleveland and move you know put there in '99 as a de- as part of the deal when Cleveland allowed Art Modell to move to Baltimore, but um, I, I think they've done a pretty good job of that and I think there's interest. They played uh, many games in you know when they do the old Negro League throwbacks on uh, on you know in games during the season they'll play in Gray's uniforms. Um, and, and that kind of thing. So I think they try to be true to their history, but it's a pretty hard history, much more um, uh, difficult to follow for, for the average fan uh, than, than a lot of other places where they've had one team for a longer period of time, even though there's been a lot of movement. I mean, for example, the St. Louis Browns moving to Baltimore, um, but you still have teams like the St. Louis uh, you know, uh, Cardinals who've been there forever. So it's, it, it, I think they've done a... A, a good job of, of, of paying tribute to their history. Overall. Yeah, and I think I, I think it's a it's a unique opportunity, right? Given the, the the status of Washington, obviously it's the nation's capital and and the national pastime, at least uh, at least officially known as the national pastime. Although uh, the Super Bowl and the NFL certainly seem to yeah. challenge that that notion. All right, so here, here's your chance, guys, to uh, promote the book. So uh, give us the title and uh, where we can find it, and then uh, uh, do, you, do you guys see yourselves doing any other projects uh, around? baseball or sports uh, going forward, or is this pretty much the opus uh, of your uh, of your life's journey? <laughs> well, it, the, t- the formal title is The Nats and the Grays, How Baseball in the Nation's Capital Survived World War II and Changed the Game Forever. Of course, it's just popularly known as The Nats and the Grays. It's published uh, uh, by Roman and Littlefield Publishers. They're over in Lanham, Maryland. The book is available in 
hardcover or paperback now. Um, uh, the paperback came out, I think, two, two, just before the uh, start of the baseball season. Two, 2017. Yeah, right, 2017. And it, it, it actually, we have um, a tribute to uh, the 70th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's Major League debut. Um, because, it, as Josh says, it came out in 2017. Um, as opposed to 1947. So uh, it is available. Uh, you can open it at any bookstore. And um, I, I, I'm very partial to it. I think we, we did as good a job as we possibly could. Uh, we've never gotten anyone writing to us saying, oh, you got this wrong. Thanks to Josh. <laughs> we've never had anybody coming Thanks, to us David. and saying, <laughs> we got, you got this wrong or something. All right, more interestingness uh, as we do each and every week. Thank you to uh, to Josh Drazen and to uh, David Hubler. And again, the book is called The Nats and the Grays, How Baseball in the Nation's Capital Survived World War II and Changed the Game Forever. It is uh, published uh, by Roman and Littlefield. Uh, you will find a link to that book and uh, all its various versions, hardcover or softcover or even the Kindle version. Uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up the episode uh, with Messrs. Hubbler and Drazen, and uh, you will find a description of the show, but also a link to the book. Uh, and by buying uh, or uh, that book through that link, uh, you will give us a few shekels by doing so. And, uh, of course, that helps keep uh, keep our lights on and our water flowing and, uh, and all kinds of other good stuff that... Uh, uh, so we can keep uh, the show uh, up and running for you uh, each and every week. Let's see on uh, GoodSeatStillAvailable.com is also the place to find all of our uh, various social media links. You'll find us on Twitter at GoodSeatStill. Uh, you'll find us on Instagram at GoodSeatsStillAvailable. Uh, there is a Facebook page devoted to this show, if you can believe that or not. As well, uh, you can find our email link on our website, but that's also you can do that directly at hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. You'll also find a link on our website to uh, to uh, subscribe to our little weekly newsletter. We put out a little uh, notification each and every week about uh, what the episode's going to be and some cool imagery and uh, a couple of other little uh, little factoids that come along with that each and every week. So we appreciate uh, you doing that. And of course, please, please, please uh, rate and review this silly little show, will you? Just uh, wherever you can do that, Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts or uh, Google Play, uh, you know, wherever you listen, Spotify or uh, Spreaker or on uh, Stitcher, if you listen to us on iHeartRadio uh, or you, you download us on your favorite little podcast app like, uh, oh, God, there's just, just so many of them out there, right? Uh, just by all means, rate and review us and hopefully positively. Uh, uh, we appreciate you doing that uh, because that helps our algorithm and it helps people find us. Uh, and uh, we certainly could uh, uh, benefit from uh, more audience and more people like you who uh, love this show uh, to spread that love uh, even further. And we thank you for doing that. We thank uh, Jerry Payne, our friend at Podfly, Podfly Productions, for uh, helping us with our editorial and production needs. And if you need some help, either getting going in, in your own podcasting or uh, where you think you've got it figured out and you want to go to the next level, while you, by all means, check out Podfly Productions. And you can find them at podfly.com. Net. All right, we're done for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Until next week, uh, God knows what we're going to have for you then, but uh, hopefully you'll uh, keep our feed open and, uh, and you'll look for that next episode and we can't wait to share it with you. Until then, take care.